Welcome to the Dragonlance Saga review episode. It is Misham Dark Ember the Ninth, if I have my date right. My name is Adam, and today I'm going to give you my review of Weasel's Luck by Michael Williams. Now, <laughs> this is uh, my perspective only, so if yours differs or you completely disagree, that's okay. We don't have to agree on everything. <laughs> that's what's great about life. I would love to hear what you did or did not like about this particular novel. If you're joining us live, then in the chat, and if not, throw them in the comments below. I'd love to hear from you. <clears throat> All right, so before we dive into this, I would like to take a moment and thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to become a member by visiting the link in the description below. You can even pick up Dragonlance Game materials using my affiliate links. So the way these work is that I'm going to give you my pre-written review, and then afterward, if you have any thoughts in the chat that you've uh, put up there or you want to throw some in there uh, before it's over, then I'll just sort of riff a little bit on whatever you guys, whether it's to do with the Dragonlance story or, or not. So... That's kind of how it goes. So let's get into it. So right off the bat, I'm enjoying this immensely. This is set 100 years, uh, 200 years after the Cataclysm, and the peasants of Salamnia still harbor strong resentment and hatred for the Knights of Salamnia. It also presents a dangerous land and noble knights, both of which equal exciting adventure. We open with Galen Pathwarden narrating the tale. He is at best unreliable in his thoughts and deeds, so I'm not sure if we're supposed to trust his version of this tale, though I did enjoy it. Galen presents the craziness of his family. His father is the retired knight of Salamnia, who hoped his sons would follow suit. In truth, his eldest son, Alfric, is a brute and lacks honor, uh, replaced by a mean streak. His second eldest son... Brithelm is a priest of some sort with no care for the knighthood. He acts as a mediator between Alfric and Galen most times. Then there's Galen, who is the rabble-rousing coward with a penchant for setting fires and stealing, much like his eldest brother, Alfric, who beats him at every opportunity. Compounding all of this dysfunction is Sir Bayard Brightblade, a knight staying with them, hoping to take on Alfric as a squire. During his stay, Galen is visited by an entity, I believe it's a wizard sowing descent in Salamnia, but it isn't revealed as of yet. This man, named the Scorpion by Galen, uh, Galen, paid Galen rubies in order to steal Bayard's Salamnic armor. If he refused, he would surely have killed him. So Galen set a plan into motion, but was discovered by a drunk Alfric outside of Bayard's locked door. Alfric was assigned protector of Bayard's possessions as he proposed as his proposed squire. And Galen, very Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn-like, convinced Alfric that there was a thief prowling around and that they had to go check on the armor. Alfric opens the door and, if memory serves, falls down hitting himself in the head as Galen collects the armor and meets the scorpion, giving it to him. Apparently the scorpion gave it to a thief who wore it as he raided nearby villages and was ultimately caught by Bayard after it was discovered the armor was stolen. I'm going to interject here uh, really quickly because I never really wrapped it up in my written review. And that's that the scorpion uses dead bodies, reanimates them, and then has them act as his puppets, as it were. This dead thief, or this thief that was running around in Sir Bayard Brightblade's armor, it was meant to be specifically representative of Sir Bayard Brightblade, not just a Salamnic Knight. And that's important early on to understand, which Michael Williams does not address at all, which I think would have actually made a lot more sense in connecting it later on with the story, but in either case. Sir Andrew, 
Galen's father, was furious with both Gaelic and, or Galen and Alfric and put them in the dungeon cell until the truth came out about who stole the armor. The captured thief named Galen as the one who gave him the armor and showed Galen's missing signet ring as proof, which was taken by the scorpion. This convinced their father, who put the thief in the dungeon and Galen in the library chained. The scorpion appeared as a raven and told Galen that since his servant, the thief, was captured, Galen was now his new servant, or he would die. The coward agreed to spy on Bayard for the scorpion. Bayard came and offered Galen to be his squire as a means to get out of captivity, as Bayard has no other options, and Galen, needing to spy on Bayard, agreed. They set off from Coastland to Castle Decayla, where Sir Baird Brightblade was to enter a tournament to win the hand of Lady Enid Decayla. He believed it was his destiny. They're met on the road by ruffians. Galen hid in the tree while Baird defeated two of the men, sending them off and away. There's a really funny moment in this uh, situation where Galen is up in the tree, perched, terrified of, you know, these, these uh, ruffians coming up to beat up or kill Baird and his squire. And... Bayard just standing there. They go to Galen's horse, which is a really old nag that, you know, was just sort of a, a send-off from his father. And the nag is so old that it literally dies the second the ruffian grabs a hold of it. It just plops over dead. There's a lot of that type of humor in this, where it's just sort of circumstantial, situational, a lot of sarcasm, and a lot of just mockery. And I love it all. I'm here for it. So then they were captured by centaurs who believed them to be the thief that was wearing Bayard's armor, working with satyrs in a war against the centaurs. Bayard offers to negotiate peace between them as a sign of good faith, and they leave him, uh, lead him to do just that. Uh, as so far, this is such a fun read. Uh, it's chock full of character development, and you really get a feel uh, for understanding these characters' motivations, even the less than honorable ones. So, Bayard, Galen, and Aegean, the centaur, go to meet the satyrs, only to be ambushed in hit-and-run tactics. Then, Brithelm arrives out of nowhere, that's uh, Galen's first oldest brother, and glides past the battling satyrs with no damage taken. He claims that he is protected from them. Another attack comes, and Galen is left to watch the rear. He's approached by the raven that tells him to report to the scorpion about Bayard. So he starts heading in the appropriate direction when, surprisingly, Galen's brother Alfric appears out of nowhere and attacks him, intent on murdering him. So this is a running theme throughout this entire novel. It's that Alfric, Galen's older brother, is intent on murdering his younger brother. But his younger brother, Galen, consistently talks his way out of it because he's so clever and so quick on his feet that... Alfred just doesn't, he's in Alfred's a big dolt. They describe him early in the novel as uh, basically like an ogre's intelligence, just a dummy. He just sort of buys whatever line and then ultimately relies on Galen for some of the lies that he's ultimately going to be sharing with other people. It's a very silly, weird situation. But at this point, Alfred's 100% ready to murder him. So apparently, Alfred escaped his father's punishment the night Galen fled and has been tracking him much like Brithelm has only with the opposite intent. Galen tricks Alfred, <laughs> Alfric into allowing him to escort him back to Bayard, as Alfric still wants to be a squire, even though he's nothing remotely close to squire or knight material. They accidentally stumble into quicksand, though it's not very deep. Galen escapes at first, 
then throws a vine to Alfric and leaves him in the swamp. Galen wanders into a clearing with a hut on stilts surrounded by goats. Made me think of Baba Yaga's hut, actually. He enters only to become trapped and learn that the hut has a chair atop of it where the scorpion himself is sitting. He demands information, and as Galen gives him everything he knows, he doesn't really have any valuable information yet. The scorpion demands that Galen bring Bayard to him in order to be killed as the goats all transformed into satyrs. Galen agrees and returns to the group only to discover that the satyrs are all illusions according to Brithelm and they fought a massive battle with varying realities of perception reinforcing the idea that it was in fact an illusion. Galen leads them to the clearing where they meet the scorpion who is ultimately bested by Bayard but disappears Obi-Wan Kenobi style leaving only his clothes. They proceed to Castle Decalo with the centaur Aegean in tow, as they can't make peace with the satyrs if they're illusions, and the centaur can't leave them without breaking a vow to his chieftain. Bayard shares the history of Castle Decalo, which is mired in treachery, deceit, and a curse on its lineage. It seems that a brother in the Age of Might found a pendant which transforms things like illusions, and he tried to usurp his uh, younger brother in order to inherit the castle. Or his older brother, I'm sorry. His family fought him to defeat, but the curse remained throughout the Cataclysm to this day. This suggests that the Scorpion is in fact none other than Benedict de Cayla himself, still after his family's castle. Cut to the tournament at Castle de Cayla, which is surprisingly the least interesting part of the novel yet, as it has no one we've come to know in it. The castle's keeper, who is giving his daughter Lady Enid to the victor, is hoping Bayard Brightblade will show up, because of the same uh, legend that Bayard Brightblade believes. But as the tournament begins, he's nowhere to be seen. There's, there is a mysterious knight called the Hooded Knight, who kills two opponents mercilessly to win, but it seems obvious it's actually the Scorpion or Benedict, more specifically. The best of this novel is Galen's sarcasm and perspectives on everything, from knightly duties to highlights of his cowardice. He is the humor of the novel and what keeps it interesting. So, back with Galen, Sir Bayard, and Aegean. They climb the Vingard mountain range pass to get toward Castle Decayla and are stopped at the summit by a massive ogre, armored and mounted. This is clearly an obstacle set by Benedict to stop Bayard from reaching the tournament. The ogre bests Bayard twice, and Bayard is knocked unconscious each time, taking longer and longer to wake. After he does, he tells the story to the connections of the Bright Blades and the Decaylas. As the legend states, the Brightblades will end the curse if they win the hand of the female uh, in ownership of the castle, which is, of course, going to be Lady Enid. After 400 years, this tournament matched the prophecy. To add to the importance, Sir Baird Brightblade is the last of his line. That's right. Stern Brightblade and his father's existence stems on Bayard successfully getting to and winning the tournament that he is already late for and have not succeeded in winning. So after defeating the ogre with Galen and Aegean's aid, Aegean is killed, saving Bayard, and the knight cuts off the ogre's head. The head speaks about his traitorous squire and how he only meant to prevent him from reaching the tournament. Now that there's no way for Bayard to reach it in time, he may descend the fountain path. Bayard is beside himself over the death of the centaur and his apparently traitorous squire and tells Galen that he's released from service. Now, this naturally does not mean that they split companionship as they were in the middle of the wilderness. 
Galen continued following Bayard to Castle de Kayla, and upon arriving was not surprised to learn that the tournament was in fact over, and Lady Enid was to wed the hooded one, Sir Gabriel Androctus, the victor. Galen weaseled his way into the sleeping into sleeping in the castle while Bayard slept outside the castle with other knights. Galen was directed to his room, which held both of his brothers, Brithelm and Alfric. It turned out, when Brithelm left in the swamp to go to a hermitage, he ran across Alfric in the quicksand. He rescued him, and together they took a shortcut to the castle, beating Galen and Bayard by three days. Galen wandered the keep, meeting Enid and her cousin Danelle, who seemed to shine toward Galen. Then he crashed only to be visited by the Scorpion yet again, who did what every Saturday morning cartoon villain does, monologues. The Scorpion admitted to being Benedict, who is resurrected every time his attempt at murdering his remaining family fails, and to being Sir Gabriel Androctus, who will murder his new bride, Lady Enid, once they are wed. But his reasons aren't as black and white as they've been proposed, and this is what makes this novel great. The curse that's laid on House Decayla is seen by Benedict as to be laid on him. He is continually raised from the dead until his family dies. He is as tormented as the other Decaylas as to um, as it was he who was screwed out of his inheritance some 400 years before. We never learn how he keeps coming back, but it genuinely loved the idea of this curse being misread and the bad guy being as much of a victim as the good guys, forcing the reader to choose or determine if any of them are actually good or bad. So once Galen knows the truth and the motivations of the scorpion, he catches a fever and goes to tell Bayard everything, as his brother Brithelm suggests. He grows even more ill along the way, only to pass out in a massive rainstorm. When he wakes, everyone, including Gabriel, is standing over him, and he admits to everything, fingering Gabriel as the scorpion and Benedict to Kayla. It takes some convincing, but then Benedict gives it away and flees. Later, he actually returns to capture Lady Enid and disappears again. Every knight in the castle gathers together to discuss what to do next, and Galen suggests the prophecy was misinterpreted by Bayard and Sir Robert. He suggests that they go to where Benedict was murdered by his own family generations before in Estwild, and that's where they'll find the scorpion there with Lady Enid. Now, they all reluctantly agree that that is the best possible scenario, so the trek getting there is quite dangerous, and they lose half of the group passing the Vingard River. Finally making it to Estwild, they find a mock version of Castle de Kayla and begin to enter when undead swarm all of them. They split up and enter the castle to find the scorpion talking with Enid. Galen tries to unlock a door by sneaking in through a window and is caught, while the knights burst through the other door and find more undead Narakans. Then the scorpion brings even more undead alive, this time the Salamnic knights who ended up fighting the undead Narakans, and Brithelm uses magic to aid the knights against the scorpion. This is an odd moment. As Brithelm has been pegged as a cleric this whole novel and has continually used some form of magic throughout, but not as, overt, as overtly as this. So he is clearly a true cleric in a time when there should be none. Is this just to fit the narrative of the story, a convenience that ignores the state of Crin and the gods? I don't necessarily mind it if there's an actual reason given, but there isn't. And so it still kind of bugs me. Anyway... They defeat the Scorpions, save Lady Enid, and Alfred and Brithelm return home. 
Galen stays with Sir Bayard Brightblade and is adopted by him. Bayard marries Lady Enid, and Danelle grows affectionate toward Galen, who now is about to take the oath as a knight of Salami himself, leaving his cowardice and weasel ways behind him. This was a funny and irreverent look at Knights of Salamnia, which I, for one, really appreciated. It kept me engaged and curious, as I didn't recall every detail from the novel from my childhood, and it has the Saturday morning cartoon happy ending that I enjoy in most Dragonlance novels. I would highly recommend this to fans of Dragonlance, funny fantasy novels, and Knights of Salamnia. So, what do you all think? Katarina, how you doing? Good to see you. Adino, thanks for tuning in live. Young Lord Scott, you finished your first Ravenloft novel. You really want to start reading Dragonlance as well? Well, start with Lord Soth then. Let's see. Engine Joe, how you doing, man? Weasel's Luck is a good time. You got it for Christmas along with Legend of Huma in 94. It's a good one, man. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, it's been years since you read it, but got it for Christmas. That's great. You actually read this one recently, Katarina. Oh, awesome. Did you enjoy it? So the books in 91 94 era were well written. Well, <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if any Dragonlance novel is actually well-written. I know people are going to get all butthurt about that. I enjoy them because of nostalgia and story and character. Um, I don't... They are all pretty kid-based, you know? So they don't need to be like Tolkien or George R. R. Martin or, you know, anything like that. Um, and they're really not. <laughs> like, by any measure. And even each author has varying degrees of quality depending on the novel that they're writing. Michael Williams, for example, teamed up with uh, his ex-wife a couple times to put out some really atrocious novels. Um, this one was pretty good. I like it more for the humor than I do the actual logical narrative because it's actually lacking in some of that. So, you know, we just have to be honest and critical when we're actually giving reviews of these novels and, and present them in the light they actually are while still celebrating what is great about them. So let's see what else. The only problem you had with this book is that it was written first person. Yeah, that is also very weird because that's different. Some books will put you in the first person perspective at times and then take you back out of it. This one was all within Galen's perspective. And that's why, you know, he's such an unreliable narrator. I don't know how much of this is actually true or not, which actually makes it more interesting to me rather than less. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting. So um, only Dragonlance characters you know are Soth and Kitiara. Two pretty good ones. Let's see, you think it's back at least to start with the Chronicles? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Adino, uh, yeah, you know, real reading order. If you knew, you always recommended reading Chronicles. Okay. So Epic Toad Rage, thanks for tuning in. You're not a big fan of the first person either. Understandable. Totally get it. See, Crim's a big world. Dragonlance was written consecutively. They didn't know if Autumn Twilight was going to be the last one, TSR published. So the answer, uh, read Autumn Twilight, then the rest. Yeah, that's usually the accepted reading order for sure. Start with the, the beginning of release. Let's see. Um... You started with the third graphic novel, drawn by Tony Dezinga. Dezing I don't know how to say that. The comic books released by DC. Yeah, they were great until they started re releasing, TSR started releasing their own, and then DC stopped releasing them because they were sort of undercutting them. Caraman's uh, progression in Legends is amazing. Here, here. He's great through that. And Raceland, of course, his progression in character art goes from just being a sickly, 
young boy who is bullied to being challenging the gods themselves. <laughs> you can't get a bigger character arc than that. This is pretty cool. Um, Mr. Mundane, how you doing? You had this book at one point but lost it. It's okay. There's libraries. You can read it for free. They're great. It's an excellent book. One of the better non-main authored books. You like Mary Kirchhoff? Yeah, she's great. Yeah, Mary Kirchhoff is great. Um, there's, the thing is, there's a lot of really great Dragonlance authors. Chris Pearson is at the top of my list. He is amazing. Um, okay, I can't think of <laughs> like all the myriad of different authors now. Uh, but he's one that I would say is up there that's the quality of writing is, if not on par, then better than Margaret Weiss and Trace Hickman. I mean, he did two trilogies that were just stunning. So you want to be a stern bright blade, but you're really a Galen. It's <laughs> uh, pretty funny. <laughs> How you doing, Chris? Thanks for tuning in. All right, so that is it for my review of Weasel's Luck by Michael Williams. What did you all think of Galen Pathwarden Brightblade to Kayla? Was Sir Bayard Brightblade a good representative of the Brightblade family? And finally, was illusion used too much and too willy-nilly in this novel you can email me at info at dlsaga.com or leave a comment below i would like to take a moment and <clears throat> swallow because i just had dinner and it's like killing me i would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this youtube channel ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos and click that like button just like this <laughs> it all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content and this channel is so about <laughs> let me start that again this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance Saga. Thank you so much for joining in that celebration. So until next time, this is Adam for Dragonlance. Slanjavar.